as most of you know, I have a bad back. And as much as a sneeze or a cough can throw it out. I've had this for 10 years. I'm still trying to figure this whole thing out. But, um, but I have a concoction that I drink, and I'm going to warn you here this morning. I drink a concoction of turmeric and ginger and cinnamon and black pepper, and it has to be the worst thing in the world to go down your gullet. Three cups of this I had this morning. And I have so much piperine running through my system, I have no idea what I'm going to say this morning. I'm just going to say I'm not responsible for what happens this morning. But the back is feeling better. (laughs) So thank you in advance for your patience. You know, brethren, one of the first things I did when I came here is that I concluded that it would be irresponsible for me to just jump into a book right away, a book of the Bible, and just start preaching. Um, I had been preaching through the book of Hebrews um, back in North Carolina, and I got to tell you, I'm missing that book. I'd like to finish that book. And I originally thought to myself, well, I'll just preach through Hebrews, maybe pick up where I left off, or I'm not sure. That would be kind of rude, though, if I just said, uh, turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. Never mind the prior nine chapters. But uh, So you can understand my sense of uh, wonderment about what to do. But what I did do is, when I got here is I decided that it would be fitting to do that which I'm not really not uh, something I don't really do on a regular basis. See, that that's the piperine. I began with some basic messages about some very fundamental ideas. The first of which was the subject of the jealousy of God. Honestly, I really believe that that's such a foundational idea that um, it almost felt like I couldn't do anything else. God is jealous for his glory And we need to understand that. We have to understand that all that we do in our lives ought to be for his glory. And then I thought to myself, well, this would be really, as I was praying about this and just considering this before the Lord, it seemed like a good idea. And I've been thankful that we've been doing this to go through the the name of the church. And so that's what we've been doing, to think about the fact that we're Sovereign Grace Bible Church. What does that mean? How often do we use words without really thinking about what they mean? I I do it myself. But the fact that God is sovereign, the fact that we've been saved by grace, the fact that we stand firmly on the Bible, and the fact that we're a church, all these are crucial truths that we have to understand. And in the process, as I've already said to you many times, what I've been doing is, is I've been preaching messages, and then I talk to you. And I listen, and I learn about where the brethren are here at Sovereign Grace Bible Church. I'm learning about your own thinking about these things. I need that because I need to think about how to minister to this flock based upon where you are. In a sense, we're getting to know each other in this process. 
Of course, naively, I thought I'd just do two sermons per word originally, and then uh, I thought, no, that's not going to work. How do you preach just two sermons on sovereignty? I mean, that's kind of embarrassing, the fact that I even thought about that two sermons originally, but we've we spent four sermons talking about God's sovereignty. Another four on the subject of grace, we exceeded that standard by going through five sermons on the subject of the Bible, and I told you that when we go get to the subject of the church, we're going to take a little bit longer to go through that. And really, when you think about it, it's kind of an intimidating thing to talk about the church and maybe just do it in uh, two or three months. We, we could spend a year talking about the church. When you think about all the passages that relate to the subject of the church, First Timothy chapter 3, uh, Titus 1, talking about the uh, qualifications of elders and Several texts in Romans, uh, Romans 12, uh, which we heard this morning. There are so many passages to go through and so many lessons to go through that I thought, well, I'm going to have to find a way to summarize this subject and keep it much shorter than a year. And that's why we first of all started off with a, a summary description of what the church is by looking at 1 Timothy chapter 3. So that we would understand what it means that when we say that we are the household of God, the church of the living God, and the pillar and the support of of truth. This this is a key foundational concept. And so we invested our time beginning there and talking about what the church is. And then we went to these bedrock principles that I do believe are absolutely essential. We could spend all our time talking about ecclesiology proper. But if we don't really understand the lessons of John 21, the lessons that Jesus gave to Peter, that our responsibility is to love Christ above all others. Here again, this is another foundational concept. We'll never do well as a church if we're not loving Christ first. I don't care how good of an ecclesiology a church has. That is a bedrock principle. As well, as Jesus instructed Peter, we're also to have singular devotion to him so that we would follow him alone. Not alone in the sense of our being alone ultimately, but he is the only one who is our Lord and Savior, and therefore we follow him. We do so as individuals, but we do so corporately as the body of Christ. And then carrying on with the theme of Peter, who, to whom Jesus said, You are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Considering the, the reality of Peter, considering the reality of the fact that he was made a, a powerful minister of the gospel, despite all of his failures, we then went to 1 Peter chapter 4, and talked about how it is that we're to have a fervent love for one another. And so this is really now entering into the phase of we're to love Christ. He is to be our first love. But then that love is then to be extended to one another with a fervent love. And as Peter says, we're to be stewards of the manifold grace of God, remembering that we're cups, we're merely cups who hold God's grace, and we're to minister in the power of his his might and, the, and, and by means of his grace. 
And so Peter summarizes all the gifts that are given to the church in terms of the gifts of speaking and serving. That's kind of a nice summary. I like it. So you have the gifts of speaking and preaching and teaching, which is summarized in texts like Ephesians 4 and 11. The many other gifts that we see that are related to servitude. So we have the diaconate. We have uh, the ministries of administrations, 1 Corinthians 12, gifts of giving and mercy, Romans chapter 12, verses 6 through 8. All these things come together whereby we all are stewards of the grace of God and our chief end is to use his grace, to utilize his strength and his grace to this chief end that he would be glorified. And then last time, we came to this text, and I, if you're not already turned there, let me ask you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 12. Where Peter says this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you, but to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. By no means let any of you suffer as a murderer or thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler, But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not feel ashamed, but in that name, let him glorify God. For it is time, listen to this, for it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, What will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, let those who who also who suffer according to the will of God entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Three years ago, I spent a lot of time thinking about, praying about this verse where Peter said, it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. Think about that, brethren. We often talk about, and even Peter talks about it, how it is that the world is watching us, and that's true. But the thing that we have to remember ultimately is that God sees everything that we do, and he sees our hearts, and judgment begins with his house before anything else. There is a very important concept of prioritization with respect to God's scrutiny and judgment. We come first. What we do matters. And in contemplating this, I was thinking, as I was studying this subject and thinking about the whole social justice movement, And how it is that, sadly, churches are allowing the woke ideology into their ranks and now really ushering in a new generation of bigotry, a new era of bigotry in their ranks. And it struck me as strange and odd because 
What we're doing now with the social justice movement is basically a replication of the past. And it's dangerous. In seminary, I remember being told and being introduced to the writings of R.L. Dabney. I'm curious, who knows the name R.L. Dabney here? I was introduced to a systematic theology. Um, it was sold in the uh, bookshop, I believe, at the uh, Master's Seminary. And silly me, it didn't dawn on me to maybe research this a little bit better, but um, remember Robert Louis Dabney, he was a pre Presbyterian pastor and former Confederate States Army chaplain. Should have dawned on me to investigate his views on racialism. At the time, I didn't really get into that, but in time, I began to read further about Dabney, and again, back in 2020, when I was thinking about this idea that judgment begins with the household of God, I was really stunned and shocked to, to discover some of the writings of Dabney on the subject of, we'll say, race. Concerning African Americans, this is what Dabney said in a book called In Defense of Virginia. Complaining about the abolitionists of the day and their labors, he says this, the Cavill's objections and special pleadings of the abolitionists team like the frogs of Egypt engendered in the mire of ignorance and prejudice, so numerous because so worthless. Whatever may have been the leniency of the Old Testament system of slavery, the state of the Gentile slave showed the essential features of slavery among us, and that is this, the right to the slave's labor for life without consent, property in that labor, the right to buy, sell, and bequeath it, the right to enforce it on the slave by corporal punishments, which might have any degree of severity short of death. And then he references as justification for that statement, Exodus 21, verses 20 through 21. You know what's remarkable about the transatlantic slave trade? It was a business of kidnapping. It was a business of kidnapping human beings and selling them as property. How ironic it is that he quotes Exodus chapter 21 because just a few verses prior to his citation, it reads in verse 16, he who kidnaps a man, whether he sells him or he is found in his possession, shall surely be put to death. Think about that for a moment. The very text that he used to justify what he was doing condemned him as being one who was worthy to be executed as a kidnapper. And remarkably, and I admit this and confess this, I'm done quoting Dabney, but in my younger years as a pastor, I used to quote Dabney, unaware of these things. 
But even in his systematic theology, listen to this, when he talks about the golden rule, about treating others as you would have them to treat you, he actually says this, listen to this. He said, if the low grade of intelligence, virtue, and civilization of the African in America disqualified him for being his own guardian, and if his own true welfare, taking the general run of, of cases, and that of the community would be plainly marred by his freedom. In other words, if you just let him wander about, everything's going to go south and sour. Then the law decided correctly that the African here has no natural right to his self-control as to his own labor and locomotion. How's that for a definition of the golden rule? Brethren, there are no excuses for this. I've heard some. There are men who have written articles and books even trying to excuse and justify this conduct. But I stand with men like Spurgeon and others who opposed this nightmare. Spurgeon who said, Although I commune at the Lord's table with men of all creeds, yet with a slaveholder I have no fellowship of any sort or kind. Whenever one has called upon me, I have considered it my duty to express my detestation of his wickedness, and I would as soon think of receiving a murderer into my church as a man-stealer. What is he referring to? Exodus 21 and verse 16. Spurgeon's right. Dabney was dangerously wrong. And what we have with the woke movement today is a resurrection of bigotry. I don't know where this is going to lead, but this is a dangerous direction. Because what they're proffering in this woke movement of social justice. It's the same thing that Dabney argued for in his day, and that is this, the right to judge an entire segment of humanity as being uniquely defective, worthy of derogation and subjugation and abuse. And this has no place in the household of God, period. If we believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, trust me, this has no place in the household of God. Remember, it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. It's not for us to imitate the world and all of its bigotry. It's not for us to imitate the world that has all of its bizarre classifications of humanity that are truly disparate and wicked. No, we understand this principle. God made a single race of humanity. We're all members of one race because all the nations of Mankind, God created from one blood. It's pretty simple, but we must never depart from the simplicity and purity of what we have in Christ and in the message of the gospel. When we think about this principle of judgment beginning with the household of God, I would just say to you, brethren, the following. 
Whatever you count as important tasks in your life, the management and stewardship over your car or your house or your paying of your bills or your taxes or obeying civil laws and the civil magistrates, all of those things are important. But mark this, nothing is more important than your conduct, your servitude and participation within the household of God. And in view of this, I would say, brethren, that this helps us to think about the importance of the Lord's table. Because this is a time and opportunity for us to examine ourselves. To make sure that we're coming before the Lord and we're honoring him. To make sure that if there are any matters of unconfessed sin, that we would deal with that one to another, before the Lord, whatever the matter may be, this is the time and opportunity to contemplate Christ, to contemplate his sacrifice, and to see to it that we not dishonor the Lord as we come to this table. As the Apostle Paul warns, he says, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. For this reason, he says, but let a man examine himself And so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Because judgment begins with the household of God. Brethren, this morning I just want to cover some principles that I think will help us to come in preparation to this table. As the church of the living God, we need to remember that this table magnifies mankind's helplessness and dependency upon God. We confess that it is the Lord who has made us and not we ourselves. Isn't that interesting that we have to be told things like that? When you think about it, when you read texts of scripture like that, is this is really how depraved we are and how foolish we are? We have to be told that we didn't make ourselves. But that shows you how our hearts and minds gravitate away from wisdom so easily. Brethren, all of mankind is helpless. All of mankind is dependent upon God just for the next breath of life that we take. We don't really comprehend that like we should, but we must grasp these truths. This table reminds us of our ultimate helplessness and dependency upon the Lord. Secondly, this table also heralds the universal nature of the gospel. We have people of very different backgrounds here. I'm part Hispanic. I'm sure you didn't think that or imagine that, but uh, whenever I spend time with Hispanic brethren, they don't let me... uh, they don't let me have a Hispanic card. I'm not Hispanic enough or whatever. But we, we, we're all, many of us come from blended genealogies too. This is a part of the beautiful thing about the human race. Um, but the thing we have to understand is, is that we all come together to one table. No matter what our genealogical background is. This is the beauty of the gospel. It's not for one group of people and not another. It is for all flesh. And this table reminds us of that. And thirdly and finally, in preparation for the Lord's table, 
We need to remember that this table destroys all our pride and presumption. And we need that. So in the time that we have, I want to begin by talking about how it is that this table magnifies mankind's helplessness and dependency upon God. Again, it is he who has made us and not we ourselves. Ultimately, we have to remember that salvation is a miracle. There's no pulling on your own bootstraps to make you go up. Only God can redeem a human life. Jeremiah chapter 13 and verse 23. This is really maybe not one of the happiest scriptures, uh, texts in scripture, but it is a needful one. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then you also can do good who are accustomed to doing evil. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? This is what we call a rhetorical question. What's the answer? No. Evil men cannot make themselves good. We cannot present ourselves before the throne room of God and be justified standing on our own because all our righteousness are counted as filthy rags. You know, it's an interesting thing. I've mentioned the dangers of the Jewish oral traditions, the very thing that Jesus warned the disciples about. One of the things that kind of refreshed my interest in studying Jewish traditions is because of the writings of N.T. Wright, because he's trying to import Jewish oral traditions into the current tradition of the church. It's a problem. But according to the Pharisaic school of Shammai, they declared that there were three classes with respect to the day of judgment, three classes of humanity, the perfectly righteous, the completely wicked, and the average people. Talk about grading on a curve. Imagine having a teacher telling you, well, we got the totally righteous, totally wicked, and then you have these people in the middle, we're not sure if they're going to make it or not. So Shammai says this, the perfectly righteous, the completely wicked, and the average people, those in the second class are forthwith inscribed and sealed for Gehenna. As it is said, many are of that that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to everlasting contempt. The third class will descend into Gehenna and cry out from the pains endured there and then ascend. Doesn't that sound like purgatory? Purgatory is basically an adopted doctrine from Jewish oral traditions. This is why Jewish oral traditions were rebuked by Jesus Christ. So you have the thoroughly righteous, the thoroughly wicked, and those in between And with that form of thinking in place, people just try to do better. This is the treadmill religion of the, of the Judaizers. Try harder. Work harder. Try to become perfectly righteous by your own merit. What did we learn when we were studying the subject of grace? We learned that it is he who has made us and not we ourselves. 
Paul says, as we studied together, he says in verse 10 of chapter 2 of Ephesians, he says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Then he says, therefore remember that you, that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And now in, but now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments, contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. This is beautiful. It is he who has made us and not we ourselves. Only he could do this. To bring such a disparate and divided group of people together and to make us one new man in Christ. And that Greek word irene, peace, literally means to take separate pieces and put them together in perfect harmony. This is what he does. And we call this a miracle for a good reason. The thing we have to remember, whether Jew or Gentile, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned and desperately need the miracle of God's saving grace. And literally, it's for everyone. I'm so thankful for that, that that's true because I'm thankful that the Lord brought the gospel to me. There's another oral tradition that says this. Three things cause a man to sin against his conscience and the will of his maker Number one, Gentiles. Number two, an evil spirit. And number three, the pressing needs caused by poverty. Does that sound like good theology to you? Have you noticed here in this, in this particular teaching that this is all about victimization? Why did I sin? Well, there was a Gentile standing next to me. Or why did I sin? Well, you know, I'm, 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 I'm not making ends meet. I'm poor, and so I just, I had to sin. Or the evil spirit made me do it. Remember Flip Wilson? The, the devil made me do it? This is Flip Wilson theology. All of this is victimization theology. And it is all missing the mark. And the fact that there was this tradition that disdained the Gentiles such that if you saw a Gentile, you'd want to flee because you don't want to be a victim of, of his influence and then start sinning. It sounds insane, but this is exactly what was being taught. 
This is why the Gentiles were so often disdained as being the bane of human society. This is why I mentioned Dabney. You know, I'm ashamed of the fact that there are some well-known, supposedly renowned theologians who try to defend Dabney. I don't know how you defend this. He actually wrote a book called, where, where he contested the thought of having black men serving in leadership within the church. And the title says it all. It says, this is the title, Against the Ecclesiastical Equality of Black Preachers in Our Church and Their Right to Rule Over White Christians. You almost don't even have to read the book. You just read the title and you kind of know where this thing is going. But he says this. He says, I oppose the entrusting of the destinies of our church in any degree whatever to black rulers because that race is not trustworthy for such a position. And then he says, there may be few exceptions. And then he offers a qualification in that regard. But then he says this. Now who that knows the black does not know that his is a subservient race. That he is made to follow and not to lead. And his temperament, idiosyncrasy, and social relation make him untrustworthy as a depository of power. And then he has the nerve to mention John Newton when he says, The wisest masters in Israel, a John Newton and Alexander, a Whitfield, have told us, that although grace may save a man's soul, it does not destroy his natural idiosyncrasy, this side of heaven. If you trust any portion of power over your church to black hands, you will regret it. When I say I'm done with Dabney, take my word for it. You know what bothers me, though, is this, is that the publishers of Dabney's works won't publish this stuff. You'll find the sec section that I quoted from the Systematic Theology, you'll find it in that, but some of these darker, even more um, overt quotes and teachings, some publishers won't even publish it. I say publish it. Put it out there. Let people know. The last thing in the world you need to, to do is to think more highly of this man than you ought to be thinking about him. Go ahead and expose what he really taught, what he really said, because that is a warning for the church to say, you know what? This is a problem. And even though you can point to a lot of other things where you say, well, he taught correctly on this and he had a, he had a sound ecclesiology, among other things, but this ruined and soured everything else. If you don't really believe that God made all the nations of men from one blood, if you don't really believe that there is an inherent sin nature in all of us and that I don't get to sit here and go, well, you know, these people over here, they're more sinful than those people over there. You know, no, we don't get to do this. That kind of thinking, brethren, is dangerous. And I say to you, this table, this table rebukes that thinking. 
because this is a table for every tribe and tongue and people and nation. The beauty of God's grace and the message of the gospel is this. All nations are called upon to bow the knee to Christ in faith. Someday all will bow the knee and some will do so before their final judgment. But we have to remember that the glorious gem of heaven is Jesus Christ. And the backdrop that enhances and magnifies the glory of that gem are the many souls from every tribe and tongue and people and nation that he has redeemed. This is the beauty of heaven. In Revelation 5, John sees this vision of the scroll with the seals that sealed up the scroll. And it was discovered that no one was worthy to remove the seals so as to open the scroll. And the scroll represents what? It represents the final redemption and judgment of humanity. How did John respond when it was discovered that when no one was worthy to open the scroll? It says, I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. But then one of the elders said to me, John says, stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and he took it, the scroll, out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, having each one a harp and golden bowls full of incense which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy art thou to take the book and to break its seals for thou wast slain and didst purchase for God with thy blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And thou hast made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign upon the earth. Only Almighty God could do this. It is he who has made us and not we ourselves, brethren. May we never forget this. May this table remind us of that truth. Secondly, this table heralds the universal nature of the gospel. We've alluded to this already. But brethren, I want us to think about the fact that as we contemplate the universal reality of the gospel, we've got to be careful that we're very clear about that truth, both in our own hearts and in the manner in which we even speak to other people. And we have to be careful not to reduce the message of the gospel just to cliches that maybe people don't even understand. I remember talking to one individual and he said he was driving by and he saw a sign and it said, Jesus saves. And as an unbeliever, he thought to himself, from what? I think about it. 
We have all kinds of different messages about what salvation is or what we need to be saved from, but there's a lot of confusion about even that concept of being saved. Thanks to the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel and others with them, for some people this just means being saved from a life of poverty or from poor health or from having a crummy job or from your unpleasant experiences. No. Jesus saves us from the wrath of God that we all deserve. And this gospel call is for all flesh with no distinction. When I think of, uh, I'm sorry, I'm just tired. When I think of my marriage, my wife, (laughs) I wonder if the Lord doesn't have a sense of humor. I'm pretty sure if she met me when I was an unbeliever in high school, never would have said another word to me again, and I wouldn't blame her. She grew up in a Christian home and had a moral upbringing. I prided myself on being an atheist well, depending on the day of the week, I was sometimes I was an atheist, I was sometimes an agnostic. If you ever talk to an atheist, you really press, press them on whether or not there's a God, they might immediately transform and shift right before your eyes from being an atheist to, well, I'm at least an agnostic. I don't know. I did that. But I existed in the world and realm of Psalm 14 and verse 1, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. I was the one saying there was no God. My wife, before the Lord saved her, she wasn't saying there was no God, but she was a nice moral person. She too needed the miracle of grace, the miracle of salvation. We have to remember that when God saves a person who has a nice religious upbringing versus a person who is an immoralist, and pure pagan, it's still a miracle. We have to get this straight. And it's not a greater miracle from one side of the column to another. It's still a miracle. Because when you think about the moralist and the danger that the moralist exists in, where he might think to himself that, well, I'm a good enough person. I I live, I'm, I'm maybe not perfectly righteous, but I'm certainly not perfectly wicked. I'm kind of in that middle ground. I think I might get there. If I try hard enough, do enough, and run really hard on that treadmill. In John chapter 9, when Jesus rebuked the Pharisees who could not see their own sin, Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world so that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, We are not blind too, are we? And Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin, but since you say, We see, Your sin remains. You think you can see? You're blind. We sing the hymn, Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. 
we see now because of grace. And that's it. But oh, how the moralist wants to concoct a different view of humanity. Again, here's another Jewish oral tradition which declared, and I'm quoting, the first patriarch says the tradition, the first patriarchs were without a trace of iniquity or sin. Wow, really? So Abraham was sinless, I guess. We know better. Abraham needed to believe in God and be justified by the merit of Christ. <laughs> Reminds me of a, of a politician years ago who said that there is not a smidgen of corruption in the IRS. Yeah. Right. All are corrupt. All have sinned. All fall short of the glory of God. Again, this table brings us back to our root problem and need. This is why we need it on a regular basis, brethren. Again, it also reminds us, this table, of the fact that we have a universal need in this world. The gospel is for all, all flesh without distinction. And we must never try to adjudicate who should hear the gospel and who shouldn't. You know, one of the things I will be talking about in, in, in time to come is the concept of hyper-Calvinism, which is kind of an unfortunate title because um, I wouldn't assign Calvin to any of the ideas here within hyper-Calvinism. But hyper-Calvinism really kind of swings the pendulum of God's sovereignty to such a degree that you end up with a passive fatalism, the kind that says that, as Paul quotes, why does he still find fault for who resists his will, as Paul says in Romans 9.19. In other words, God's already chosen the matter, and there's nothing to do now. And the hyper-Calvinist says, well, it's already settled. I don't need to share Christ with others. You know, if God wants them to be saved, it'll happen. They're completely ignoring the reality of secondary means. We're called to be servants of God, to proclaim his word. But if we don't think correctly and properly in this regard, we'll enter into the sin of Jonah. Remember, Jonah was commanded by God to go to Nineveh and to preach the word of the Lord, but instead he rebelled and fled to Tarshish. After being swallowed and regurgitated by a large fish, as we know the story, Jonah reluctantly fulfilled his preaching duties in Nineveh. When the people repented and the Lord withheld his wrath, Jonah became angry at the outcome and confessed this to the Lord where he said in Jonah 4.2, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to foresaw this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that thou art a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. Imagine being this stubborn, this rebellious, that the sight of sinners coming to repentance would make you this repulsed. Brethren, the gospel 
I know you know this. I know you know this. But we need to encourage one another to remember this. The gospel is for all flesh. And it is not for us to discriminate from one to another who is to hear the gospel. Unfortunately, the spiritual progeny of Jonah's rebellion continues to this day. The tradition of of Jonah is rooted in several faulty beliefs. Number one, the false notion that the messenger has any authority over the gospel message and its distribution. This tradition is also a conviction based upon denial, the denial of the Lord's broad love for all men without distinction. Secondly, it denies that God's messengers are the instrumental means of the outworking of God's sovereign redemption. For how will they hear, Paul says, without a preacher, Romans 10, 14. And thirdly, it is a denial of the fact that the gospel of God is truly a universal message that is to be preached to all flesh. Brethren, we live in a world that is fraught and filled with wicked judgments and classifications of humanity. Wicked and false religions, wicked and false forms of of atonement. But it must never be that these things would be imported into the church because judgment begins with the household of God. And we need to believe that God's grace is so powerful so as to take a wretch and transform him. I'm always surprised. You know, when I think about the Apostle Paul, I forget the reality of the fact that the church had a hard time receiving him when he was first saved, right? In Acts chapter 9 and verse 26, we we read that when he came to Jerusalem, he was trying to associate with the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was a disciple. Why were they afraid? Well, Paul confesses and admits to why they were afraid when he says in Acts chapter 26 and verse 9, he says, I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth, And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prison, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. And as I punished them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. And being furiously enraged, he says, listen to that, and being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. That was Saul before the Lord redeemed him and made him his servant of Christ. You know, when I was first saved and I came back to my hometown of Redlands, I remember meeting people who knew me in my former life and they couldn't believe. It's like, really? I knew you. I said, I know. It's God's grace. That's all it is. It is he who has made me, not myself. And this brings us to our final point, brethren. This table, this table, it destroys human pride and presumption. And brethren, 
Don't take this personally, but we all need this every day. We need to have our pride taken down. Our presumptuous spirits need to be deflated. And we need to treat one another with this understanding of the fact that, again, we're all the children of God. We're all the children of God. You know, James writes a scathing letter. This is, I contemplated preaching through James. Trust me, I've got several books I'm now praying about. James is a powerful epistle. Humbling, beautiful, wonderful. But it comes with some very strong rebukes. He calls them adulteresses. And says, my brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. This is chapter 2. With an attitude of personal favoritism. Look at me. I'm special. Unlike these people over here. So he describes this attitude. He says, for if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dress in fine clothes, and there also comes a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and say, you sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool. Have you not be- made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil, evil motives? Isn't it interesting that we can divide and separate humanity in a lot of different ways? For Dabney, it was skin color. He imagined vainly that this is a distinct race. No, it's one race. James is rebuking the distinction of humanity based upon one's wealth or lack thereof. You know, it's interesting. We, we're so sinful, we can come up with a lot of different ways to distinguish and separate human beings. But James tells us, don't do it. Do not do it. Let me just conclude with a few thoughts. In our sanctification, we need to have a part of us remember where we came from. We don't dwell on the past. But we don't forget it absolutely. When Paul describes his salvation and sanctification in Philippians chapter 3, he gives us the resume of his former life and he piles it on, talking about what a faithful Pharisee he was and how it is that he was committed to the law. And as he piles up this resume, he just looks, he looks at it and he says, This is all loss, it is loss. It is loss compared to gaining Christ. Everything that he could have boasted in in his former life, he saw it for what it was. It was just a reason for him to live in in the cesspool of his own pride and sin. We must not forget where we came from. We must remember that God saved wretches. This is what he does. And we're all equally guilty before Almighty God, all needing the same powerful work of grace. 
Secondly, brethren, let us be faithful to shun the world's classifications of humanity. There's so many. This is why I'm opposed to the whole woke movement. I'm as, as, I'm as opposed to that as I am opposed to Dabney and all the racialists who try to divide humanity between white and black then. I don't care how you do it. It's wrong. And finally, I'll just say this, even as we come now before the Lord's table. We must remember that at the foot of the cross, we all stand shoulder to shoulder. There's no distinction. This is a key matter that we need to remember. And this table reminds us of the fact that we're all sinners in need of Christ. And we've all received the same grace of salvation such that we're now stewards of the manifold grace of God. And glory be to God for this. It is he who has made us, and not we ourselves. Let me ask the usher.